Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to Behind the Knife. It's my pleasure to introduce the UCLA endocrine surgery team. The team includes myself, Rifka Shinoy, a PGY-5 UCLA general surgery resident, Dr. James Wu, Dr. Masha Levitz, and Dr. Michael Yeh, three of the attendings at the UCLA endocrine surgery department. Dr. Yeh was unable to join us for today's podcast, but is looking forward to participating in the future. Hi, so this is James Wu. So in April of this year, the American Association of Endocrine Surgeons had our annual meeting. The virtual format was excellent, and we have a number of excellent presentations that we'd like to share with you. The abstracts are available to us, as well as the presentations, but the full manuscripts have not been published. So today we're going to start with Stones Left Unturned, which is a study on missed opportunities to diagnose primary hyperparathyroidism in patients with nephrolithiasis. This work was presented by Dr. Liu from New York University. The group performed a single institution study which looked at eight years of data from patients with kidney stones without a prior diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism. They found that over one-fifth of these patients never had a calcium level measured at their initial presentation. Of those that did have a calcium drawn and were found to be hypercalcemic, over two-thirds never ended up having a primary hyperthyroidism level sent. When sent, 72% were found to have an elevated or inappropriately high PTH level. Also interestingly, those that did have a PTH drawn were more likely to have been seen in the outpatient versus emergency department setting. So I'm now going to turn it over to our attendings to talk about some key points from this study. Masha, I'd like to start with you. What interested you about this study? Hi, I'm Masha Levitz. Um, the, the first point that uh, really kind of struck me was that, again, this study shows the uh, number of patients who do not get properly evaluated for hyperparathyroidism. Um, so you mentioned in the study that of the patients with kidney stones who were found to have elevated calcium levels, the majority never had a parathyroid hormone level checked. And this has been shown in prior institutional studies from academic centers, from the VA system, uh, that there's really an under-evaluation and under-treatment of patients with hyperparathyroidism. Even in a case like this, where there's a clear indication for surgical treatment because the patients had kidney stones. So it's really an opportunity to improve our care of these patients. Yeah, it really struck me that there was actually a very low percentage of patients who had nephrolithiasis who had hypercalcemia. Of these 15,000 patients, only 5% had an elevated calcium. However, with the patients who had hypercalcemia, only a third of them had a PTH level checked. And of those patients, the majority of them actually had PTH elevation. And ultimately, only 16 patients over those eight years underwent parathyroid surgery even though a few more were recommended to have surgery. So definitely there's a big room for improvement. Uh, We do think that there is a huge opportunity for interventions through the electronic medical record. Uh, I wanted to share some unpublished data from a medical student at UCLA, Nardine Daywood. She's able to use a what's known as a BPA or best practice advisory to alert 
physicians when patients have elevated calcium levels to consider ordering a PTH. And she found that before the initiation of the BPA, uh, only 4% uh, had their PTH measured, and afterward this increased to 45%. So I think that would be a powerful intervention for things like this. Wow, that's a, a pretty significant increase. Um, I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on whether the setting plays a part in the type of follow-up. So in this study, they found that in the ED, patients were less likely to have that PTH drawn. Yes, I think certainly when you're in the ED, we're dealing with acute issues. So uh, in this case, the acute issue would be the kidney stone, and the evaluation for hyperparathyroidism certainly is elective. Um, so I think that um, the responsibility from the ED is ensuring the appropriate follow-up, usually with uh, endocrinology, um, if the patient is found to be hypercalcemic in the ED, uh, then at least to have the appropriate follow-up so that a hyperparathyroidism workup can be done as an outpatient. And I think that's probably appropriate. It'd be difficult uh, for a emergency uh, physician to get PTH level, have the patient leave, and then not know how exactly to follow up with the patient. It's probably best done through the patient's primary care doctor. Definitely. I always, whenever looking at data regarding having more labs drawn and more follow-up, I the question that I always have is, uh, how is this ultimately going to benefit the patient? And so continuing on that topic, uh, Dr. Huang from Kaiser LA presented an abstract on parathyroidectomy for nephrolithiasis in primary hyperparathyroidism, beneficial but not a panacea. So the question this group asked was whether we're actually helping patients with kidney stones by offering them a parathyroidectomy. They performed a nine-year retrospective study done in the Kaiser system, which looked at patients with primary hyperparathyroidism and at least one episode of nephrolithiasis prior to this diagnosis. They compared patients who were pre-surgery and post-surgery to an observation group. Of the approximately 1,200 patients analyzed, 31% had at least one episode of recurrent nephrolithiasis in their follow-up period. The observation group had the overall lowest recurrence, and the surgery group never crossed the observation group on Kaplan-Meier curves. However, recurrence rate was significantly reduced after parathyroidectomy between the pre- and post-surgery groups. Notably, the only other predictors that they found for nephrolithiasis recurrence were age less than 50 and lower calcium levels. So James, what surprised you about this study and how can we think about it, particularly in light of the results from the prior study? So this was a great study. It was really surprising to see that the recurrence rate of nephrolithiasis, nephrolithiasis was so low in the observation group. When they were watched for 5 or 10 years, 86% and 77% never had another kidney stone. And then it was also surprising to me that when you compare this study to the NYU study we talked about first, that at NYU, looking at 15,000 patients over an eight-year period, they found 198 patients who had primary hyperparathyroidism. Whereas in this Kaiser study, over a 19-year period, they identified 1,250 patients. And I think, going back to your earlier point, that the practice setting may make a difference in how these things are caught. And at an encapsulated system like a Kaiser system, um, there may be something that we can all learn about how best to 
uh, make sure we're adequately capturing the diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism. Yeah, I was quite surprised at the results. I mean, in general, when we think about hyperparathyroidism and what are the indications for parathyroidectomy, which patients would benefit from surgical treatment, we think about the NIH consensus criteria, which includes osteoporosis with a T-score of minus 2.5, kidney stones, you know, as a major one, um, young age, you know, se- severe hypercalcemia, and kidney stones we think of as being one of the, the major sequelae of primary hyperparathyroidism um, that patients could benefit um, from surgical treatment in terms of reducing future kidney stones. And that has been proven or shown in prior smaller studies. Um, but, you know, one of the advantages of a Kaiser study is uh, such a large group, a fairly diverse group of patients um, who are treated uh, in this healthcare system with longitudinal follow-up because patients tend to keep their Kaiser insurance for a long period of time. So we can do this kind of study with a long follow-up period and knowing that we're really should be capturing the majority of uh, clinically significant kidney stones, at least, because patients with Kaiser insurance are going to come back um, to the Kaiser, to the emergency room, or to the outpatient setting. They're not going to enter and exit the system um, as with the academic institutions. So I think that um, in this study, you know, I was surprised that there was not as much of a reduction in kidney stones compared to the non-operative group as I would expect. Um, and I think that this definitely needs to be further evaluated, you know, ideally with uh, probably a prospective multi-institution study, uh, because if the results really, you know, were to be confirmed, maybe we would think about this a little bit differently, at least in terms of how we counsel patients um, and their fu- risk of uh, future kidney stones after a parathyroidectomy. Yeah. But one, I think, important caveat that they did also bring up during the meeting was that this was a retrospective study and they could only capture events where people had a hospital visit for their nephrolithiasis. And we still don't know if uh, patients who were treated with parathyroidectomy had fewer symptoms at home for episodes that didn't necessarily require them to go to the hospital. Right, and I think that's the limitation that I've definitely always run across with my database studies, is capturing these events that are more subtle. Um, before we move on to the thyroid, I've been really lucky to do a bunch of parathyroidectomies with both of you, and I'm interested in whether these studies will change your practice at all in a more day-to-day basis. I would say not at this point. I think that, um, you know, any data particularly from a retrospective study, even a large one, needs further confirmation before we would change our practice. So I think in terms of indications for parathyroidectomy, kidney stones certainly remain one of the indications. Um, I I do think that in both of the studies, this point of under-treatment is an important point. And, um, you know, at UCLA, as James mentioned, we are undergoing work to try to improve our diagnosis so that we're not missing these patients who might benefit from parathyroidectomy. Um, and the last thing to mention is just that, you know, the both of these studies looked at the kidney complications of hyperparathyroidism, but the bone complications also remain a primary concern. Um, and so the those indications for surgical treatment wouldn't change. I don't think it changes how my practice except for how I counsel patients. I think patients who are undergoing surgery because they're tired of their kidney stones, I would definitely let them know that they still have a fairly reasonable high chance of having another kidney stone, although we'll reduce 
um, how often they may occur. Uh, and also, again, I think it shows us how much of an opportunity there is for us to improve the diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism. On to Dr. Hollebeck from North Shore LIJ, who presented work on radioactive iodine for patients with aggressive variants of papillary thyroid cancer. This study used 12 years of data from the National Cancer Database, looking at patients with three different uh, papillary thyroid cancer subtypes, classic, tall cell, and diffuse sclerosing. After propensity matching, they found that there was no difference in overall survival for patients who had tall cell and diffuse sclerosing variants between those who received total thyroidectomy alone and those who also received RAI for tumors less than 2 centimeters. However, in patients with tumors between 2 to 4 centimeters, overall survival did significantly improve from 70% to 83.4% for patients who received RAI. So there were a lot of questions about the role of this with patients with extrathyroidal extension and clinically positive lymph nodes. James, I'm going to start with you. Can you talk about that? Thanks, Rivka. In this study, there was many questions about whether the presence of extrathyroidal extension or clinical lymph node involvement was considered uh, in the results because in these variants, they often present with more aggressive and more severe disease. The authors did say that these were accounted for in their propensity score matching. So to distill it into how this changes my practice, I think there's always a lot of questions about small one to two centimeter thyroid cancers found to have tall cell or diffuse sclerosing variant that do not have high risk features, no extra extension, no clinical nodal involvement. And do those patients need a completion thyroidectomy for possible RAI after a thyroidectomy? And after seeing this study, I think it gives us some ammunition to say, no, they don't require that. However, it is important to note that this was only talking about survival and there is no recurrence data and noted to talk about the need for reoperation. One additional interesting point I thought about this is that more and more we're thinking about the molecular structure of thyroid cancer and tosyl variant is really a surrogate for a BRAF mutation because 85% of tosyl variants have a BRAF mutation. So I think this also gets at what happens when we find that uh, thyroid cancer incidentally also has a BRAF mutation. I think this tells us that there's no difference in survival if they don't get RAI as long as the cancer is less than two centimeters without any other high-risk features. I really agree with all the points that James uh, made. Um, I had a patient recently, a young woman with a small, you know, two centimeter intrathyroidal tumor. I did a thyroid lobectomy and the pathology was a two centimeter uh, tall cell variant, papillary thyroid cancer. Um, and I felt comfortable um, just observing her, uh, but uh, her endocrinologist um, was really worried about the tall cell variant and wanted a completion thyroidectomy. We presented the case at our endocrine tumor board conference, and the consensus there was to perform a completion thyroidectomy uh, to possibly enable radioactive iodine ablation. Um, and so I did it. Um, and, uh, you know, I wish I had this data. I don't know that it would have made a difference because, as James mentioned, um, there is no structural recurrence 
uh, data from the study. And that's a very important outcome for patients too. I mean, we know that the survival for these patients is really excellent, uh, but a structural recurrence, which could lead to reoperation with higher potential complications, that's significant. Um, and so that is still an important outcome that we don't have. So I do think that this kind of data may eventually change our clinical practice in terms of patients with smaller tumors um, that don't have other high-risk histopathology features like the extranodal, uh, um, sorry, like the extrathyroidal extension, um, not requiring radioactive iodine and perhaps just being treated with a thyroid lobectomy. Um, I do want to mention some of the other limitations of a study like this. Um, you know, these uh, variants are relatively rare, and so it is hard to study them in a in, uh, single institution or multi-institution prospective study. Um, so the large database lends itself to, you know, for, to study things like this that are more rare. However, there are limitations of a large database study like this, um, such as the last lack of fine details with the histopathology features. Um, so first of all, I always worry um, about the accuracy of the variance um, in a study like this. I mean, we were rely on somebody to code this correctly. Are we really sure that they had tall cell or not? Um, and then also, um, you know, the percentage of tall cell in particular really matters. Um, if it's less than 30%, it's just tall cell features. And it's really more than 30% of tall cell that we consider being tall cell variant and having a true impact um, on the aggressiveness of the tumor. And we don't know that in this study. Yeah, it sounds like uh, that's kind of a common theme with a lot of these presentations that we're running into is the limitations of database and retrospective work on ultimate conclusions. The last study we're going to highlight in discussion is Dr. Kim's presentation on a collaborative study examining the potential role of radiofrequency ablation for benign thyroid disease. Before I get into the details of the study, James, can you tell us a little bit about the use of radiofrequency ablation, or RFA, for thyroid disease? So thyroid radiofrequency ablation, or RFA, is just a new emerging technology that first came to Europe about 10 years or so ago and is now getting more adoption in the United States. But essentially, it's a minimally invasive way of inserting a probe into a thyroid nodule and destroying the tissue there, uh, either by laser, microwaves, or freezing. You can protect the surrounding structures by injecting water into the planes around the thyroid. And this is an alternative to surgery in benign thyroid nodules, very small thyroid cancers, or in patients who absolutely refuse surgery. Thanks for that. This group studied patients who underwent thyroid surgery for benign disease between 2015 and 2019. They then performed a retrospective analysis on those who would have met eligibility criteria for RFA. So of the 411 patients that they analyzed who received surgery, 284 would have been eligible for RFA. Of these, approximately a quarter, or 70 patients, were found to have an occult malignancy on their surgical pathology. So what this group concluded is that while many patients who are currently undergoing surgery for benign disease may be eligible for RFA, the rates of occult malignancy may be significant and should be considered. So can you tell us a little bit about what this study shows in light of this emerging new treatment? Yeah, this is always my concern with RFA, particularly for larger nodules, is the potential for sampling error, for missing a cancer um, that could become significant in the future, 
as James mentioned, this is um, still fairly new technology, so we don't have long, long-term follow-up, especially for um, for detecting potential missed thyroid cancers um, to see if they recur and how that could be treated. Um, so I, I think this is um, important for us to consider as we potentially utilize this new technology. Um, you know, a lot of these uh, tumors were kind of microcarcinomas that maybe are not clinically significant, um, but some of them were cancers that were more than a centimeter um, and could be clinically significant. And I think we don't really know how we can follow these patients post-RFA, um, what the imaging will really look like, how easy it would be to detect a recurrence on ultrasound after RFA. Um, so I think this... Um, uh, it just shows that uh, any new technology like RFA needs to be implemented um, carefully. Um, and uh, maybe James could kind of talk about more how we're doing this at UCLA. So we just built this as a new service line at UCLA. And uh, the things that we have considered is the risk of missing a cancer diagnosis. So at UCLA, to meet eligibility for RFA, uh, patients need to have at least two thyroid FNAs with benign results before we'll consider uh, performing RFA, and that's to miss, uh, avoid missing a cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting in this study that in the 23% of people who had an occult malignancy, 7% was in the primary nodule, but 15% was elsewhere in the thyroid. And that tells us that we would have to biopsy every nodule in a thyroid in order to avoid missing a cancer diagnosis. And maybe that makes it uh, less favorable in patients who have multiple nodules. Other things we consider is that the nodule should not be in a high-risk location, should not be close in proximity to the recurrent original nerve. The incidence of voice change after RFA has been uh, approximately 1% or less. Uh, we try to keep that as close to zero as possible. Uh, we also do consider it uh, for small thyroid cancers, but we want to do it in a very thoughtful way because we already understand that many micropapillary thyroid cancers do not need any treatment, can just be observed. And so we are asking all our patients who are requesting thyroid RFA uh, for a cancer to meet with an endocrinologist, an endocrine surgeon, as well as interventional radiologist, and we all should agree uh, before uh, agreeing to perform RFA for a malignant lesion. Uh, afterwards, uh, for surveillance, we are simply having the patients follow up and receive uh, interval neck ultrasounds. Um, the frequency, I don't think, is yet well established. So can you tell me describe what your ideal patient would be for someone that you would consider RFA for. So I think that a, an ideal patient is a patient who has a benign thyroid nodule that's been biopsied twice, who is symptomatic and simply wants to avoid surgery. Mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, important for patients to know that after a thyroid RFA, the results are not immediate that there is a reduction in size that patients notice at about a month later and continues through about six months. And also, we, don't, we do not expect 100% resolution of these nodules. The, usually, they get as small as 30% of the original size, and that's about it. And who's someone that you would definitely not perform RFA for? 
So for me, I'm still fairly reticent to recommend radiofrequency ablation for anyone with a thyroid cancer. Okay. Uh, and it's only for patients who are absolutely refuse surgery that I think this is a good alternative if we can prove that the biology of the tumor uh, warrants treatment instead of simply observation. I do always worry that if patients need surgery after radiofrequency ablation, it becomes higher risk because of the scarring that occurs. And I would just add also potentially in older patients um, where even if there's, uh, you know, very, very small uh, micro, uh, microcarcinoma that is missed would probably not be very clinically significant. Um, so perhaps an older patient with a large benign nodule that looks benign on ultrasound has had benign FNA, but is symptomatic, um, but, um, you know, would benefit um in terms of reducing the nodule size with RFA, uh, but the nodule looks benign on imaging, has had benign uh, FNA, um, and like I said, maybe an older patient or somebody with comorbidities where surgery is higher risk and has even more benefit for a non-operative intervention. And I think one last uh, role for RFA is in patients who have undergone multiple, multiple reoperations, and we think that the risk of another operation is too great but there is biopsy-proven recurrent disease. Uh, I think in those patients, RFA can be very helpful to avoid another surgery, but at least treat the tumor. So wrapping up our discussion of these main abstracts that we chose to highlight, uh, a common theme that I've noticed is the idea of telling surgeons to operate less. And we see this across surgery for things like appendicitis, diverticulitis, and also it's clearly a theme here. Can you just comment on that idea or as an endocrine surgery, as a field, is it moving towards operating less or just more careful selection? And what, what do you think about that? So I think um, as an endocrine surgeon, we tend to think of ourselves uh, as it's not just as a technician. You know, we're really intimately involved with the diagnostic workup, with the follow-up, with the surveillance. So it's not just the surgical part. Um, so I do think that endocrine surgery has been moving in a direction of de-escalation of care um, for, for low-risk disease, which I think is very appropriate and which I think, um, in general, surgeons should, should be happy, you know, <laughs> to uh, be able to tell patients with low-risk disease. I mean, it's what you would want for your own family member to uh, be able to avoid an operation if it's it's not necessary. And I think as of now, there's still certainly enough patients with, you know, more aggressive disease, um, aggressive thyroid cancers, uh, adrenal masses, hyperparathyroidism. Mm -hmm. There's certainly plenty of surgical indications. Um, but we saw this actually at UCLA when we instituted molecular testing for indeterminate thyroid nodules. And there was some concern that um, this would really reduce our surgical volume. But what we found was the opposite, actually. Our surgical volume only increased um, and the yield of malignancy increased. So we were able to operate less on patients with benign disease and more on patients with malignant disease, which I think is what we you know, all want. So I, I'm bummed that Michael couldn't join us today, but I want to talk about his beloved trolley dilemma, which is, well, we are the operators of a trolley that is going to go down one of two railroads. And it's either going to miss a cancer diagnosis in some patients, or we're going to cause surgical complications in a bunch of patients who get overtreated. And I think we have to weigh those two outcomes. On one hand, low-risk papillary thyroid cancers have a known risk of recurrence in the single digits, 
and great 10-year survival, even when nodes are involved, and uh, weigh that against the risk of complications of a thyroid lobectomy, total thyroidectomy, total thyroidectomy with radioactive iodine. We're just piling on complications, and for a disease does not warrant that degree of treatment. I do think that there's probably more we can do to change the incentives because right mm. now we're incentivized to do more for a disease that we need to do less for. So we want to end with some quick shot highlights. Uh, the first was a multi-institutional study that looked at gender representation among AAES presenters. So the main conclusions of this study were that the first authors of both genders for presentations were more likely to work with male mentors versus female mentors. While female first authorship did increase over time, female senior authorship remained flat. And finally, that less than 15% of the invited lecturers have been women in the past, and zero have received the Oliver Cope Achievement Award. So this study was important for identifying disparities for future, uh, future efforts. Notably, this actually changed this year in 2021 when Dr. Janice Pasika did receive this award at this conference. I think in this time of medicine, we would be remiss to not think about racial and ethnic disparities in every field. And with that in mind, I want to highlight a, a study done by a group from Stanford, which was a large database study. This study found that Black and Hispanic patients after a diagnosis with primary hyperparathyroidism were more likely to be hospitalized than white patients. They did find that having access to endocrinology care was associated with being more likely to be followed up with a surgeon and receiving surgery. However, interestingly, on interaction analysis, this association did not persist for Black patients. Black, Asian, and Hispanic ethnicity patients were less frequently evaluated by a surgeon after diagnosis, and Black and Hispanic ethnicity patients had lower rates of parathyroidectomy after evaluation by a surgeon. Work like this is critical with future EDI efforts. Also wanted to give a quick mention to the work by Max Shum, our research resident at UCLA and future endocrine surgeon. He did a nice study of ATA members about decision-making in the treatment of thyroid cancer. And in this survey study where ATA members estimated the risk of recurrence and complications and then were asked to recommend their treatment for four common clinical scenarios, Max found that there was very little agreement across four common clinical scenarios about the best treatment for thyroid cancer and that estimates of risk of recurrence only influenced 15% of the decision making and it was very easy for a single patient to go across the street to a different endocrinologist, endocrine surgeon, and get a totally different recommendation, highlighting room for improvement in how we recommend treatment to patients. So while we chose to highlight these particular abstracts that we found to be particularly clinically significant, I do want to say that the meeting highlighted a bunch of fantastic presentations, and these can all be found on endocrinesurgery.org. Um, and all of the recordings are available online. So thank you so much for joining us for our first podcast from the UCLA Endocrine Surgery team. We'll see you back again in a couple months for a clinical ch case challenge. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for Bye. Dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.